Welcome to EM Guidewire, your guide to emergency medicine, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey gang, Bryant Allen with EM Guidewire here for another tasty morsel of sepsis goodness. We had a wild ride through Sepsis Awareness Month. We appreciate all of your downloads and feedback. Following our bonus episode, we were made aware that sepsis exists beyond the walls of the emergency department and were invited to explore that world by an old friend of the program. Without further delay, let's join the team and our special guest to explore the world of sepsis in the ICU. Hey everybody, welcome back to EM Guidewire. Thanks again for tuning in over the last month as we went over all aspects of sepsis in the emergency department for our special Sepsis Awareness Month. We looked at defining our septic population, our fluid management, antibiotics, as well as fine-tuning our resuscitation. We even went to the land of bubbles and popsicles to address the specifics of sepsis management in the pediatric patients. Hopefully, with this information we provided, everybody can feel a little more comfortable when the next septic patient hits their department. And with that, welcome to this very super special edition of EM Guidewire, brought to you by Flu Vaccines. I'd take a sore arm over winding up on ECMO any day. Flu Vaccines. That's right. Uh, we're back here. This is Sean Murray, PGY3. And Jeremy Driscoll, also PGY3 here. And really going off that, if you didn't catch any of our prior episodes, please go back and review those critical topics. This week, we are going to continue and complete our sepsis series, but this time taking on a different viewpoint. Instead of coming to you from the front lines of the resuscitation room, we're going to be looking at what happens to that patient after they get admitted. That's right, EM Guidewire here with an exciting episode about inpatient medicine. Oh, thank goodness. Now we get to do everybody's favorite part, the admission, medication, reconciliation. Now, I personally like to go through all my drugs initially alphabetically, and then I further subdivide them by organ system, and then finally by what pharmacy they were filled at most recently. Stop. Just please stop. You're really hurting me, and in all seriousness, we do want to talk about inpatient care, but what we want to focus on is what happens next to our sickest septic patients, the ones who get admitted to the ICU. And in order to do that, we are excited here today to welcome back the late, the great, Russell Tregonis, calling in from beautiful Indianapolis, where he's currently a critical care fellow at IU after graduating from our CMC emergency medicine residency this past spring. Russell my friend, welcome back to the show. Hey, team. I just want to say thanks for having me, and I'm so excited to be back on EM Guidewire. I miss most of you. I'm going to count myself among those most of you. And, Russell, I've got to say, the place has not smelled the same since you left. So over the past couple of weeks, Russell, just to fill you in, we've been reviewing all the latest and greatest information in the world of sepsis and how we can give our patients the best care possible. At the end of the day, though, any patient that comes in with a concern of sepsis normally has a pretty clear disposition. We're either going to a floor bed if they're stable or an ICU if they're not. Uh, if they show any signs whatsoever that they're concerning for possible decompensation, they're going to go to an ICU. Either way, we need to work with our inpatient teams to make sure our patients are getting the best possible care. Now that you've betrayed us and moved to the dark side of inpatient medicine, walk us through your mindset when you get consulted for a sepsis admission. Sean, that cuts pretty deep, man. I thought we were friends. Well, we all make mistakes sometimes. 
depends how quickly you can clean a room upstairs for this patient I've got in my resuscitation bay. Okay, I'll get right on it. Start some sterilization processes up here. But seriously, admitting patients for sepsis is one of the absolute core concepts of critical care medicine. This is the bread and butter of the ICU. But despite all of our experience with it, sepsis unfortunately still has an incredibly high mortality rate. This is for a lot of the reasons that you've already so eloquently laid out in your previous episodes. Sepsis is an incredibly complex pathophysiologic process, has countless mimickers, and its management is filled with pitfalls and potential complications. If you take this and combine it with the fact that patients who often present in septic shock requiring ICU admission are riddled with multiple other complicating comorbidities, that's just going to make their care even harder. We are both concerned about the same patient population. So what exactly do you look for when you're first evaluating a septic patient? The keys to sepsis management upstairs are going to be the same ones that we deal with downstairs. Resuscitate and treat the source. As you two mentioned, honestly, in your guiding resuscitation episode, these patients need appropriate fluid resuscitation. 30 to 40 cc's per kg is still what we're shooting for unless you have a significant contraindication to that. Now, remember, the reason why we're doing this is because sepsis causes a vasodilatory or distributive shock. These patients' capillaries are blown wide open and their blood and nutrient flow is getting in appropriately sent to the wrong areas. We've taken what's our normal circulating volume, and instead of preferentially sending it to the organs that need it most, we're letting it go anywhere that it wants. This results in generalized poor perfusion and leads to organ dysfunction that characterizes the most severe causes of sepsis. Since reversing the underlying process, the infection causing this state, is going to take some time, we want to get fluids into the patients to make sure that enough perfusion is getting to the organs that need it. With that in mind, we can facilitate this process by administering vasopressors simultaneously with beginning our fluid resuscitation. Don't wait for your 40 cc per kg bolus to finish up before realizing the patient is still hypotensive and then calling pharmacy to get your levofed drip. Get that drip started as soon as possible. Get that drip started as soon as the first liter is in and see if that patient is still hypotensive. You can start that norepinephrine peripherally and at a lower dose, say lucky number seven, seven mics per minute. As you continue to fluid resuscitate, you might be able to wean those pressors off quickly. If not, you already have them running as you are completing your fluid bolus and can quickly titrate from there. The kidneys need MAPs greater than 65, and some patients with chronic hypertension may need even higher. Feed the beans as early as you can and get the patient the best chance for success. Okay, well, that's great to hear. That's pretty much what we talked about in our last episode in guided resuscitation. So to summarize, we're going to resuscitate like we've been trained. Aim for a goal of 40 cc's per kilogram of IV fluids. Normal saline, right? Sean, if you give that patient three liters of normal saline, I will call your program director personally and tell him to fail you. I know him. I'll do it. Well, you'd just be feeding into my ever-growing file of reasons to kick me out, but fair enough. Lactated ringers it is, or Normasol if I'm feeling fancy, which I am. While I'm getting those fluids going, if I see that that patient is hypotensive, I'll go ahead and order a vasopressor drip with norepinephrine being my first-line agent to start running. Starting norepi at 7 micrograms per minute is going to give me all the luck I need, and then wean it off quickly if the patient's pressure improves with a fluid bolus. Exactly. Once that patient comes up to the ICU, we're going to keep doing the same thing. Constant evaluation of volume status is key to our resuscitation. Once they've received our fluid bolus, we can continue escalating vasopressor therapy, giving their dilated vasculature a little bit more squeeze and trying to get that volume to go where we want it to. As far as the specifics of doing this, 
I keep going with the norepi until I hit a rate around 20 mics per minute. Now, this is not an evidence-based number, but it's an easy one to remember, and no one would really disagree with it. If the patient is persistently hypotensive at 20 mics per minute, this is the point that I add on a second agent, normally vasopressin, at a fixed rate of 0.03 units per minute. In addition, if I get to that point where I'm adding a second vasopressor, this is where I normally go ahead and load that patient with stress dose steroids, normally 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone, with plans on continuing a regimen of 100 milligrams every eight hours while the patient remains in shock. If a patient is this sick, the benefits of steroids significantly outweigh the risk, and I'm going to give it to them empirically. So once the patient has been resuscitated with fluids, we will next continue with the vasopressors, which we acutely started alongside with our initial IV fluids. If after fluids, the norepi gets to 20 micrograms per minute, we'll go ahead and start a second agent like vasopressin, as well as give the patient stress dose steroids. 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone will be the initial dose, and we'll leave it into the ICU team to continue it from there. Perfect. The next step on my mental checklist after making sure that we have appropriate resuscitation is identification and treatment of the source. As for treatment, don't overthink it. Give the patient broad-spectrum antibiotics like piperacil and tazobactam and vancomycin. This was beautifully laid out by you guys again in the antibiotics episode. Now, the skills come in the identification piece of the puzzle, and this is where the ED, above anyone else, has the tools to succeed. Hang on. I'm confused. How do our incredible good looks help us with source identification? Not exactly the skill set I'm referring to, especially not with you, Sean, but one of the main reasons why the ED team is best suited to take care of septic patients is that you guys have the best diagnostic tools at the bedside and at your fingertips. Any patient that comes in critically ill with concern for sepsis deserves all the pictures in the world. That means getting a chest x-ray right there in the room as an initial screen to look for pneumonia, but also tailor an ultrasound exam. If the chest x-ray has non-specific opacities, see if there are consolidations on your ultrasound. In addition, if one side is worse than the other, see if there's a unilateral effusion, which could be a paranemonic process. If the patient has a big belly, get an ultrasound in there to look for free fluid. This is doubly true with liver failure patients. That free fluid, while not likely blood unless you have a different clinical history, is most likely ascites, which is a perfect medium for bacterial infection. If there's a pocket, you're doing the patient a disservice by not performing a diagnostic tap. Just take a small gauge needle, maybe a 22, and sterilely aspirate 10 to 20 cc's of fluid to look for cell counts and culture as you're starting your antibiotics. This is a quick procedure that just takes a few minutes to do, but it really does impact impact management going forward. Now, in addition to giving fluids and broad antibiotics, these patients might also benefit from more tailored antibiotic therapy as well as albumin. Finally, the last piece you should look at more closely is if you have concern for a urinary source. If the patient is septic from a UTI, we need to make sure it's one that antibiotics alone can treat. What I'm concerned about here is pus under pressure. I see where you're going with this. If a patient is septic from a urinary source, we need to make sure that there's no obstruction, namely an infected stone. We can do this at the bedside with renal ultrasounds looking for hydronephrosis. Or, if the habitus makes this difficult, we should order a CT abdomen and pelvis to look for this as well. Either way, getting a picture is necessary because an infected stone or other obstruction is a surgical emergency and it needs decompression. Exactly. Honestly, on any septic patient, I have a low threshold to scan. This is doubly true for any possible abdominal source. A CT abdomen pelvis will not only show any possible urinary obstruction, but can also look for other surgical emergencies like bowel perforation or anything else, as well as giving you at least an initial view of the biliary anatomy. In addition, these scans will also catch the bottom of the lungs, the most high-yield portion when it comes to infections. Sometimes clinical exam and laboratory studies can direct you towards these possible diagnoses, but if the patient's encephalopathic, a scan might be the best 
best history you can take. If the patient's renal function is bad and you're concerned about contrast, a non-con will at least let us evaluate for the true emergent processes so it should still be absolutely pursued. To review, we need to be experts at source identification in the emergency department, and fortunately, we have the tools to do so, as well as our good looks. Sorry, Sean. Get a chest x-ray to look for pneumonia, and use thoracic ultrasound to improve your specificity. If you're concerned about an intra-abdominal source, use ultrasound initially to look for free fluid, and be ready to grab a sample if you have a concern for ascites. Next, if you are suspecting a urinary source, you have to check for obstruction. This can be screened initially with an ultrasound, but be aggressive in ordering CT scans for any patient with urinary sepsis, as well as any patient that has a chance of an intra-abdominal source. I love it. At the end of the day, you guys know all this, and the ED is phenomenal at recognizing and treating sepsis. Hopefully, this has just helped to reinforce the critical actions that we need to do in order to take care of the sickest septic patients that are getting admitted to the ICU. So that's it? All the fancy ICU team can recommend is to keep doing what we're already doing downstairs? Come on, man. At least give us something fun to talk about. What about this procalcitonin screen that people are talking about? How about vitamin C? Thymine? Can we cure sepsis with a multivitamin and a glass of OJ? (sighs) I guess we got to go ahead and start talking about this fun stuff. So let's start off with procalcitonin. Procalcitonin is not exactly a new test, but one that has become more prominent recently as a marker of bacterial infection. Procal is an acute phase reactant protein that your thyroid normally produces to help with calcium regulation. However, for reasons that are still not entirely understood, it gets produced by a wide range of tissues whenever you have an active bacterial infection. It's produced quickly, normally within a couple hours, 2 to 12 after systemic infection, and peaks normally in the first 1 to 2 days. Now, at the end of the day, this isn't really a useful test for the emergency department, and it should absolutely never change management. If you were going to give that patient antibiotics before, no procal level should change your mind. On the other hand, it can be used to quickly de-escalate and discontinue antibiotics on the inpatient side. Given how quickly it rises and peaks, a low level can give you confidence to stop your antibiotic course. However, one thing to remember is that procal is not specific. Levels can rise in trauma, different neoplasms can cause elevated levels, and it can also remain elevated in ESRD patients as it's normally renally cleared. In short, Only order it in the ED if your inpatient team asks you to get it for a baseline. If the patient looks septic and is going in the ICU, never let it prevent you from giving antibiotics. So, Procal can be used to discontinue antibiotics or tailor the total length of treatment, but should never dictate antibiotic initiation. If patients are sick and there's a concern for sepsis, give that bug juice. Got it. So that brings us finally to the next big thing in critical care medicine, vitamin C and thiamine. We'll keep this short and sweet here. This is what we know. Merrick in 2016 published a single-center study with 47 patients that compared septic shock treated with standard of care versus treatment with a cocktail of meds, including IV thiamine, IV vitamin C, and IV steroids. In his small trial, he saw an absolutely incredible mortality benefit, 40% mortality in the standard of care group versus only 8.5% in the group that used his cocktail. If that were reproducible, this would have been the single biggest lifesaver in sepsis since whatever the septic white bread is. I don't know, vancomycin. Unfortunately, no other trial has ever shown such benefit, though there may be a few more out there currently that are still analyzing their data. Another problem with this study is that this was a triple intervention, and it's hard to separate what might have really made the difference or if it was the whole combo. Now, we do know that steroids likely help and at least don't hurt our patients based off the big adrenal studies and the approaches trial. In addition, IV thiamine and IV vitamin C have been studied extensively from a safety side, and we can confidently say that these medications, they're not going to hurt your patient. 
With all this under consideration, vitamin C and thiamine don't hurt septic patients, but also might not help them. Given this, their use is pretty sporadic still in the critical care world and seems more likely due to an individual's anecdotal evidence or preference rather than what's considered standard of care. Then again, some critical care people still don't trust VBGs, so who can say anymore? Regardless, the bottom line is that in the ED, don't waste your nurses or pharmacist time by ordering vitamin C and thiamine, at least not yet. Well, I've got to ask you, Dr. Trigonis, are you using vitamin C and thymine? So I sometimes use it when we hit that same threshold that we started about using our stress dose steroids. If I have a patient who's now on two vasopressors because their norepi hit 20 and I'm already giving them steroids and they look like they're just kind of poor protoplasm, malnourished, things like that, I'll sometimes throw in a little bit of vitamin C and thymine just to see if that helps. All righty, man. I'll keep ordering the turkey sandwiches and you keep ordering the vitamin C and thymine. An orange a day maybe keeps the sepsis away. I like that. I like that. I like that too. So we covered, or more accurately, re-emphasized a lot of things today. Let's do a quick summary to close out our sepsis series. At the end of the day, with the sickest septic patients, our role in the ED can be boiled down to a few simple things. First, resuscitate. Make sure your patients get the full 30 to 40 cc's per kilogram of balanced crystalloid unless they have a clear contraindication. While starting that resuscitation, initiate vasopressors early, maybe even before you're done with fluids, to ensure that you hit your goal maps as soon as possible. Next, identify and treat the cause. Be aggressive with imaging, whether with formal x-rays and CT scans, as well as bedside ultrasound. The best broad-spectrum antibiotics in the world can't get to some targets unless you localize them first. Sepsis is an incredibly complex disease process that comes with high mortality rates, but the care we give in the ED sets the stage to give our patients the best chance for success going forward. Well, I got to say, all jokes aside, Dr. Trigonis, we do miss you here at CMC. We don't have another giant ginger to take your place. So, Well, I can't wait to try and come back there and fill it again one day, Sean. I miss you so much. So thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of EM Guidewire. This officially closes our series on sepsis. And a big shout out to our friend and colleague in Indiana, Dr. Russell Trigonis. Thanks for being here, man. No, thanks for having me from all the way up here in, honestly, balmy Indianapolis. Brought to you by the residents and faculty at the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is E.M. Guywire. Thanks for listening to E.M. Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today. Seems he out. This closes out the sepsis week, and we're like, we got another one! I'm so excited, guys. I'm so excited. I miss you so much. I miss your smell. Mr. Musk, I think after this whole thing blows over, you and I get in an apartment together, huh? My name's Ron Burgundy. What we need to know is that chicks dig a guy with a sweet set of skills, like bow staff skills or hacker skills. Nunchucks? And nunchuck skills. I have none of those.